Amen, church. Well, you may be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you please open up to the first letter of Peter? As my dear friend Ed Rosen would say, to one Peter, please turn. We are going to be looking exclusively at verse 11 this morning. But to provide a little context, I will back up to verse 9 and read all the way to verse 12. Please remember as I read that this is the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <laughs> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Please pray with me. Father, as we enter into this time, your hour where your word is to be preached, we pray rightly delivered. Please prevent each of us, myself and your sheep, from thinking that this is now a study hour. This is a continued hour of worship. This is the continuation of our exaltation of you as we look humbly into your word to see as your people what you have called us to do and whom you have called us to be. In addition, Father, as my brother Jeremy has already prayed, I pray that the Spirit would move this morning in our midst that there would be deep contrition and readiness to repent where necessary. I pray that the awareness of your spirit would be on all of us and that as we hear the word preached, we would not think of ourselves of evaluators of your word, but that as we are good Bereans, and we seek to rightly understand the scripture and make sure that what is said this morning matches what the Spirit delivered to Peter thousands of years ago, that there would also be a spirit of submission and a willingness to obey your word and a coming underneath and a readiness to hear and repent. So Lord, be with us. Let our worship continue this morning. To the glory of Jesus, our Savior, we offer this prayer. Amen. Amen. 
Well, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we have concluded a long look into the identity of the people of God. I say we've concluded a long look. We're almost there. We've got a few more identity markers to look at this morning, but this morning in the letter of 1 Peter, we're going to make a very big transition, okay? The letter's going to take a big shift. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, of course, Chris, we're not in verse 9 anymore, okay? But no, we're going to make a big transition, and unfortunately, our modern um, translators didn't note this with the paragraph breaks. If you look, maybe you have a copy of the ESV. Mine says at verse 13, there's a new heading, submission to authority. And that is true. Um, Peter is going to go on to talk about submission to authority from verse 13 and on down. But in verse 11, Peter begins to make a shift from what he's been talking about to this point in the letter. And if you'll look with me at verse 11, you'll see it. We look together. He says, beloved, I urge you. He says, I urge you. Now, you need to pay attention when you see language like that in the New Testament. Paul frequently uses this same kind of language when he is transitioning from a period of his teaching that is primarily theological, it's instructive, but he's transitioning from that to application. So we've done this study of who we are in Christ, of the people of God, of Jesus, and what he won for his people, for the glory of God. But we're transitioning to application and instruction. We're going to go from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. We're going to look less at the indicatives, what is indicative of the people of God, and we're going to transition for the rest of the letter to the imperatives. So you are this, therefore you should do this. In Romans 12.1, Paul says in the ESV translation, I appeal to you, therefore brothers. Now you can't see this in English, but this is the exact same Greek phrase that Peter is using here in verse 11. I urge you, Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore brothers. He's given this Theological treaties on God, on sin and man and our response to sin in Christ. And then he comes to the application and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. In Ephesians 4.1, we find similar language. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. He makes the transition from theological instruction to application. In Philippians 4.2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. To agree in the Lord, and he would continue on to give specific instruction to the church at Philippi. Even in Philemon, verse 10, after his introductory words to Philemon, he says, Brother, I appeal to you. It's that same Greek phrase, I urge you, making a transition. Peter is doing the exact same thing here. When we've looked at this point primarily, to the indicatives, we're now going to mix in a lot more imperatives. You're going to get a lot more commands. So prepare for that, church. And this begins right here in verse 11. One other transition you need to know about as we continue from verse 11 and on through the rest of the letter is that chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And remember, in the original Greek text, there would not have been verse markers. It would have just been a body of text. 
But from chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 10, we've primarily been learning about the believer's relationship to God and because of the believer's relationship to God, who we are. But now we're going to shift to how the believer relates to the world. So we've gone from a vertical dimension, we're going to transition to a more horizontal dimension. Peter's making that transition right here in verse 11. Years ago, my wife had an opportunity with several women from Basswood to participate in a ladies' firearm safety course. And I was really excited about this. Um, The husbands, the men got to come along and learn as well. But it was particularly for the ladies. And when we arrived on a Saturday morning at a rural farm, the ladies went into the house and we sat down in a room together. There were all these chairs set up. And the men who have proficiency in firearms use, in uh, police training and things like that. They had a slideshow for the ladies. They walked them through how a gun functions, how to safely hold a gun. They handed us dummy guns. We got to kind of point and figure out how to get a sight picture. And all of that, um, all of those definitions, the the girls were kind of getting that poured into them early in the morning. But there came a moment when our instructor said, It's time to go out to the range. Now, this is the moment the guys are waiting for, right? Like, yes, give me a gun and let me shoot, right? It was a ladies' course, so we didn't get to fire. But some of the girls, as they left, uh, this this was the part they weren't looking forward to, okay? Like, I've got to shoot a gun. Now, most of them had fired a firearm before, but there's still a hesitancy about it, right? But there came a point in the class time where if we're going to, if we're really going to make this work, we actually have to go fire the gun right? And if you're going to take everything that we've gotten in the letter of 1 Peter so far and expand the kingdom of Jesus in this world, we've got to fire the gun. We've got to get out of these four walls and we've got to go fire the gun. We have to aim the gospel into the community because of who we are in Christ, because of what Christ won for us. We've got to get out there and we've got to take the only weapon that we have and we've got to put it to good use. And that's exactly what we're going to see in 1 Peter this morning as he makes this transition. He's going to give us one final warning. As he says, I urge you. Now, if you like outlines, my sermon this morning has two points. We're going to talk about our identity in Christ again. Peter has a few more identity markers for us. And then he's going to give us a warning. So just two points this morning. It's very simple. We're going to talk about our identity in Christ and then a warning from Peter. If you'll look with me at verse 11, our very first word, beloved. It says, beloved, I urge you. Don't breeze past language that often can become Christianese, okay? You might say brethren or brother or sister or beloved. Don't breeze past these words. This is meaningful. The Greek word is the word agapetos. And if you are familiar with Greek in any way, you might recognize the word agape. And that is the word for that godlike love, that giving, that dying to self for the sake of others, that kind of love. Peter uses this to speak of the people of God. One thing you can do in your Bible study in the morning is ask questions of the text. If you're going to be a good student of the Bible, ask questions of the text. Beloved. Well, beloved of whom? Who's who's the beloved? Who's the one saying, you're my beloved, right? You might think, well, this is a letter from Peter. He's writing to this church, so he's saying, you're my beloved. The context doesn't fit that interpretation, though. If you look back up at verse 10, 
We were not a people, and now we're God's people. Once we didn't have mercy, now we've received a specific type of mercy, and that's God's mercy. Peter is transitioning to this application section, and he's literally saying, beloved by God. Beloved by God. How are you going to make a transition to where you must do something? What, what identifying marker, what punctuation could you put on this? How do you highlight it? How do you underline it? You are loved by God. You are loved by God. Church, have you thought about that recently? Have you thought about the fact that you are loved by God? As a pastor, one of the things I hear so frequently from the people of God is that, yes, I know I'm loved by God, but really it's in spite of me. I mean, I, I, God loves me, but it's because he just sees Jesus. He doesn't really see me. That's not what Jesus said in his words to the disciples in the latter chapters of John, right before he went to the cross, he said, there's coming a day, speaking to his disciples, when you won't have to ask anything in my name. You won't. Because the Father loves you. The Father loves you. Yes, he loves us because of the work of Christ. Yes, he loves us because of all that Christ won for us. But there is genuine love for individual believers from the Father. He loves us. And you have to hear that this way, or else the rest of this isn't going to make any sense. This is why Peter punctuates it this way. Beloved by God. Now, you are loved by God. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? C.S. Lewis once said, to be loved by God, not merely pitied. It's the way most Christians feel about it, right? Oh, you poor thing. I love you. No, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, hear this church, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. And so it is. We sing the hymn frequently. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. And yet in the last verse, when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Let it fall on you like a warm blanket. You in Christ are loved of God. Now we can get to work. I am loved by the Father in spite of my sin, in spite of my wretchedness. I am loved by God. Now we can get to work. And he calls us to get to work. He urges us as sojourners and exiles. Depending on your translation, you might see some different words used here. The King James Version uses strangers and pilgrims. I like that pilgrim language. Or the NASB, one of my favorite translations. If you're looking for a good translation other than the ESV, NASB is an excellent one. Foreigners and strangers. Now, this is a direct quotation from the Septuagint, 
of Genesis 23, verse 4. And again, I know I've mentioned this in weeks past, but if you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, if he had gotten in contact with a Bible, with a copy of some of the Old Testament, it would have likely been in Greek, and this was what we today call the Greek Septuagint. Abraham says in the English Standard Version, I am a sojourner, and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Peter is hearkening all the way back to Abraham to make a point to us about what we're about to be commanded to do. Okay? Peter's using these terms to remind the church primarily of our temporary nature in relationship to the world. The passions of the flesh, he's going to go on to say, are fleeting. Don't waste your time with them. You have so little time. Please, don't give it to this. Now, this is not to say that the physical world is bad. We've talked about Gnosticism in the past. One of the earliest church heresies was the Gnostic heresy. And there were a variety of beliefs that went into the Gnostic heresy, but one of the primary ones was that the physical world is bad. But everything that is unseen or spiritual is good. Physical bad, spiritual good. Peter is not here falling into that Gnostic heresy. What he's not saying is, since you're sojourners and exiles, ignore the world, preach the gospel, because... We're going to get out of here in just a few minutes. That is not what he is saying. This world and what we do with it matters. This world and what we do with it matters. Look what Abraham said. I'm a sojourner and I'm a foreigner among you. So give me property. What, what is he doing? He's buying terra firma. He's buying part of the world. Why? Because it was needed for his sojourning. What is needed for our sojourning? Jesus gave us this world. He gave us this garden and he said, tend it, take care of it and make this my kingdom. We are commanded to use the physical world to bring about the kingdom of Jesus. We can't ignore it. Let's not be Gnostics. But let's remember, and this is why Peter uses these words, we're only here for a short period of time. You are only here for a short period of time. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. So don't waste your time on the passions of the flesh. Now, I know we've talked about in the past few weeks, beloved, a lot of markers of the identity of the people of God. And you may be getting weary of this. We've talked about a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. Now we're the beloved of God. Now we're sojourners and exiles. When are we going to talk about Jesus? Brethren, can I encourage you? Peter has labored in this letter to remind his readers to this point of their identity in Christ because your identity matters. Who you are often reflects what you will do. Who you are reflects what you will do. He wants you to know who you are. Listen to this. I went back through verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and I went through and I tried to write out as closely as I could some of the identity markers that we've received 
so far from Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of who we are in Christ. This list may take some time, so bear with me. We are the elect, the chosen. We are born again. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, guarding, guard, uh, being guarded in heaven for us. We ourselves are being guarded through a faith for a salvation that is coming. We are rejoicers. We are suffering through various trials. We are tested. We are in love with God. We are believers full of joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We have been served by the prophets. We are sober-minded, obedient children, set apart as holy, calling on the Father, ransomed from futility by the precious blood of Christ. We are obedient to the truth. We are of imperishable seed. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We are living stones, a spiritual house, a priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. We are honored for believing. We are a chosen race. We are royalty. We're a holy nation. We are the property of God. We are his people, and we have received his mercy. Peter has said all of that about us so far, and that's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what you need to hear, church, is that all of that that I just read to you, Jesus said about you, and he wanted you to hear it. So we got this problem in our world today where it's like, okay, the safe thing to do is just think thoughts about Jesus and not worry about all this stuff that they say about me because I'm really a worm and I don't deserve it and all of that sort of stuff. Beloved, none of what I just read is yours apart from Jesus and his gospel. Let's just, okay, rest there. That's comfortable. None of what I just read is ours apart from Jesus and his gospel. Jesus, though, is the king of this world. Jesus owns all of this. Jesus humbled himself by giving up his glory, by coming to the earth, which was reigned by Satan. He booted the door down by submitting himself to the point of death. He threw chains on the devil and threw him into prison because of his death and resurrection. And now he gets to tell us whatever he wants and we rejoice in it. That's our Jesus. To say that the work of Christ merely accomplished our redemption. Church, can you please hear this? To say that the work of Christ merely accomplished our redemption is to deny Jesus glory for which he fought. I want to read to you a quote from one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton's such a witty guy, and um, this one really pierced me this week. It's very prescient, sees into the future well. Chesterton says, what we suffer from today, this was written back in the early 1900s. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved, now this is confusing, but I'll explain. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. 
Now, we all know in sin and in our pride, get a little overly ambitious. You need modesty to control that is what he's saying. But instead, we've removed it from that part of man and we've put it over here where we believe the truth. And now we're modest about what? About the truth, about things that anchor us to the real spiritual realities that Christ won for us. Chesterton goes on to say, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does not assert, or excuse me, nowadays, a part of the man that a man does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to, himself. But the part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, and that's the truth. Listen to this. We are on the road to producing a race of man too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Where are we? Where are we? Church, can I just give you some encouragement? The reason that the world today is having trouble believing that two plus two equals four is because the church is having trouble believing who we are in Christ. It's because the church is having trouble believing that what Jesus said in this entire book is true. We're having trouble standing for it. We're having trouble standing up to the opposition that we face today because we're modest about the truth. We don't want to assert the truth. But instead, we assert exactly what we ought not to assert, our pride, our ambition, ourself. So let me encourage you with this, and then we'll go to the warning. If you can read past all the blessings that belong to God's people that Christ won for you, you are not saying, I must decrease. See, that's what we think in our head, right? Like, oh, I'm going to be humble, you know, I'm not going to think about it. You're not saying, I must decrease. You're saying that God's truth must decrease. If... For example, every year, my wife and I, by God's grace, we celebrate an anniversary. And I come home, and I want to share my love with her, and I buy her an anniversary gift. And this year, I, we, we both went out and picked out an anniversary gift together. But if I brought it home, and I handed it to Tammy, and she said, this is amazing. This is wonderful. I'm, Chris, I'm so unworthy of this. I tell you what, I'm going to box it up, and I'll put it in the attic. And thank you for thinking of me, though. How insulting is that? Right? First, beloved, as we transition in this letter, as Peter urges us with the imperatives, please don't forget all that he's labored to show us with who we are. We are the sojourners. We are the exiles. We are in a world that right now feels very much like it is not our own. So don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't forget. Now, let's go to the warning. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So here we receive his command, his warning. He says, I want you to abstain. He means, I want you to hold back. I want you to keep off. I want you to prevent. I want you to be away, absent, or distant from. 
The Greek word here, again, something that we can't detect as well in English, to abstain, is in the infinitive form. And it basically means, I need you to continually keep away from this. So what he's going to say is an ongoing command. It's not something that we go, oh, that's a great thought. I'm going to work on that today. No, 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 no. He said, you need this all the time. You have got to stay away from this all the time. Since this also follows this phrase, I urge you, basically what we're seeing here is our first imperative. He's commanding us. This is in direct opposition This abstain from the passions of the flesh, it is in direct opposition to the reigning ideology of our day. What is that? The reigning ideology of our day is moral neutrality. What you feel, moral neutrality says, what you feel is neither good nor bad. You've got feelings that arise in your heart. Since man is morally neutral then our morals are morally neutral, okay? And what you feel is neither good nor bad. So the only evil thing to do would be to try and control your passions. They're not good or bad. Don't control them. That would be wrong. Now, I've got to ask them, well, wait a sec. Where did that standard come from? If there's all moral neutrality, where did you get that standard? Because this is why Christians are the enemy of the modern world. We are the enemy of the wide-eyed, crop-top, green-haired, man-hating lesbians of the world. We are. We are. Why? Because they have been indoctrinated all of their lives that the world is neutral, no good, no bad. Let your passions flow. Let them go. Do what you want. But beloved, mark it down. There is no such thing as neutrality. You want to take something to the bank? There is no neutral place in the universe. There is not a place in the universe over which Jesus Christ, who is Lord, you've heard it before, he says, this belongs to me. It's mine. Therefore, There is no place for which we can say, this is mine. We talked about this last week. We are not autonomous individuals. Ownership is inevitable. You will belong to someone. You will belong to someone. Now, Peter's going to go on to tell us, here's what I want you to abstain from. He says, I want you to abstain from the passions, your translation might say, the desires of the flesh. Now, when you hear the term flesh, your brain's going to create a mental picture, okay? You hear the term flesh, you're going to think bodies. Now, I'm cautioning you against this. This will drift you into the world of Gnosticism. Bodies bad, spirit good. You see, we're back in the Gnostic heresy again. Don't go there. I know that when we read the English word flesh, we think physical bodies. That's not what Peter or Paul are trying to communicate with this term. Rather, I would encourage you to think natural humanity and our desires apart from the Spirit of God. Okay? What is the flesh? The flesh is natural humanity and our desires apart from the Spirit of God. 
That's what he's trying to communicate. It's our sinful predisposition to disobey God. It is essentially, if you want to write something very short down, essentially, it is man apart from God. That's what is being communicated when he says flesh. This is the way that Paul uses the term in Galatians chapter 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. That means obvious. They're out there. Everybody can see them. Nobody's got questions about them. That's a work of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He is not merely referring to a body here. He's not saying the works of your body are this. We can go all the way back to Genesis and see that that's the case, right? Pre-fall, Adam and Eve's bodies did not produce sexual immorality. God looked at the world and said, this is very good. Their bodies didn't produce the works of the flesh. But post-fall, Cain's flesh, his human nature mixed with sin, produced enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, all of these things. So now that we've talked a little bit about flesh, what are these passions of the flesh that he's talking about? I want to go through a few of these words in some of these vice lists that were given in the New Testament. I want to look at a few of these words with you. Um, I would encourage for further study, you looking up some of these vice lists. There's going to be one a little bit later in First uh, Peter. We've already seen one at the beginning of First Peter chapter 2. I'll discuss in a minute. Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Um, we get vice lists all through the New Testament. I would encourage you to be a good student, this may sound strange, church, I would encourage you to be a good student of sin. I would encourage you to be a student of hamartiology. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. I would encourage you to study it and know what a sin looks like because we allow ourselves to fall into these, we might call them respectable sins, because we think, well, that's not really a sin. You begin to study some of these lists, some of these words, you start to dig down, you see, well, the sexual immorality, that started a long time ago. That started with a glance here or a look there or a thought in the heart. Not this gross stuff that Peter seems to be talking about or Paul talks about when he talks about an orgy, right? No, it it started a long time ago in the heart. Sexual immorality, this is the Greek word pornea. It's usually referring to sex outside of marriage, but as Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, this includes sex in your heart and mind as well. Jeremy mentioned this in his pastoral prayer. Can I encourage you, church? I urge you, abstain from that passion of the flesh. Flee from it. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about sorcery. That's not something we think very much of today. This is the Greek word pharmakia. Kids, when you hear that term, you might instantly think farming. Well, parents, you might think of a different kind of farm, a pharmacy, 
That's actually where we get the word pharmacy from. It's from the Greek word pharmakia, which translated here in the English is sorcery. These two ideas, drug use and magical arts, often went together in the ancient world. Well, you wanted to do some magic tricks for somebody. What do you do? You dope them up. And then you start pulling rabbits out of hats, and they're like, man, this is awesome, right? Sorcery. It's, this is where it comes from, right? I might say, for us as a church, thinking about drug use might not be a big deal, but young people, can I just encourage you? Watch out for this. Because the world of magic and the darkness of the occult and drug use often go hand in hand, okay? Just a warning to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe that there is freedom for a Christian under their parent's supervision or an adult of the proper age and aptitude to read a book like Harry Potter. Now, that's my own conviction. If you are convicted otherwise, that is your freedom in Christ. But... I believe that it is freedom in Christ for a young person with their parents' supervision and discipleship to read through a book like this. But I will offer you a warning. Unlike the Narnia series or even Lord of the Rings, where there is always a higher power pointed to from which the magic comes, if you read Rowling's story carefully, you will see that question is never answered. And... Let me tell you something, young people. There's a war going on all around us in the spiritual realm, and there are demonic forces that would love to answer that question. You want to know where Harry gets his power? I can tell you. Let's get away by yourself a little bit further, away from mom and dad, away from input. Keep reading. I can tell you. Let me tell you, if you don't think that's actually going on, you need to think again. You need to think again. Sorcery? Be cautious, church. I urge you, flee from the passions of the flesh. Envy, jealousy, the passions of the flesh. Again, when we think bodies, we think something that comes just physical in nature. It's my body. We think of sexual immorality. We think of things like drug use. But of those passions of the flesh, there are also social sins, sociable sins, envy, jealousy. 1 Peter 2, 1, envy and slander. What are those? They're passions of the flesh. I urge you, flee from them. Last, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think one of the chief works of the flesh of our day. We find the Greek word malakois. This means soft or effeminate. And it is used in your ESV translation to describe the passive partner in homosexual relations. It's referred to in other texts in the ancient world as a catamite. This would be a boy who is being groomed for sexual abuse by a man. The ESV reads it and says, men who practice homosexuality, you've got a passive partner, an active partner. We think that they're talking about 
those who engage in homosexual practices. And they're likely right. But remember, the inspiration came to the Apostle Paul for the Corinthians in the Greek, and words matter. Malakois means soft or effeminate. And something that plagues our world today is men who are soft and effeminate. Again, I was blessed by Jeremy's pastoral prayer, and he alluded to this several times in his pastoral prayer. Soft and effeminate men are ruining our world today. We are overly ambitious and not bridled in our ambitions. But when it comes to the truth, we're soft. We back off. We don't lean in. Men, when we stand in a group of men and we're having conversation and fellowship, and you know what you believe to be true, but you back off because, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Careful. Passions of the flesh, soft, effeminate. When a man considers that discipleship in his own home is that time when they sit down together in the evening to read the Bible, but he is not actively throughout the day training his children in righteousness, teaching his boys not to slam a door, to stand up in the presence of a woman, teaching his girls how to be respectful, how to be submissive, all of those things. But then when the kids act up and he throws a fit and a temper tantrum, what are we seeing? Malakois. He's being soft. He's being effeminate. I urge you, my brethren, please abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why must we abstain? Because, brothers and sisters, this is war. This is war. Listen to what Peter says here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Since the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the flesh has declared war on the soul of the Christian. Soul here refers to the opposite of the flesh. Peter's description of a man in Christ filled with the Spirit. Beloved, there's a holy war going on for your soul. The passions of the flesh and the dread pirate Roberts have something in common. They are both coming for your soul. That's right. In AD 70, Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem and he began the destruction of the temple. His goal was to keep the temple and turn it into a Roman temple, but it caught fire and then it was destroyed. It's actually a pretty marvelous feet how Titus not only burned the temple, but you know it was made of stones. And these stones were massive. I mean, they were huge. Take up a large portion of this room, just one stone. How did he get, as Jesus would prophesy, no stone left upon another, which is the way that it is today. It's a pretty masterful feat. But as Titus came in to destroy the temple of God and the worship of God, the center of Jewish culture, The aim and main objective of the war of the passions of your flesh is to destroy your soul. Now, I know there may be a thought in the back of your head. Well, the good news is, though, we're going to persevere to the end. You know, he who began a good work is going to see it to completion. Beloved, can I encourage you with this? When 
Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, the works of the flesh are evident. He lists the list and then he says, those who do such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. I can tell you for a fact, it would have been silly for somebody to stand up at that church meeting where they were reading that letter and say, it doesn't really matter though because I'm gonna persevere to the end. That would sound absolutely foolish. It would sound foolish here for you to come to this passage which wage war against your soul and say, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to persevere to the end. But this is Christians is what we often do. We get a little nervous. We see what may be indicated here from the apostle, but it, it looks like if there's a war going on, what, what's going to happen? What if I did continue in the passions of the flesh? What if I don't inherit the kingdom of God? Can I just say Amen. Don't neuter the passage. Don't cut off what he's trying to say. Faith without works, James says, is dead. Does that mean that we're saved by faith and works? No. But you're not saved by a faith that doesn't produce works. I can tell you that much. What Peter is doing here in giving us this warning passage is akin to what a landscaper might do if he's got a client who's got a dying plant or tree. He's going to go get some compost, and he's going to put the compost on. Now, the compost is smelly, it is hot, and oftentimes it looks like it's going to kill that tree or that plant. But what does it do? It works just the right minerals into the soil to allow the plant to survive. Don't come to warning passages in the scripture and then just say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to persevere to the end. That is a truth. If you are in Christ, you will persevere to the end. Amen. But let the warning passage have its work on your soul. There's a war going on. I don't want to be on the losing side of that. It's to prompt you to good works. So in conclusion, beloved, we begin a new chapter, so to speak, in 1 Peter. And as we turn from the indicatives to the imperatives, I want you to remember several things. Number one, I want you to remember who you are in Christ. Remember all that Jesus won for you. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, right? So we have to think the way that Jesus taught us to think, which is to think his own thoughts after him. Go home, look deeply into the face of Christ, and then take these identifying markers. Lord, I am having trouble believing that I am beloved. I want to hold this up to you, though, and I want you to give me faith to believe this because I need it because you said it about me, and it is eternally and forever true, and I need that. Let this settle deeply on my soul. Number two, stay away from the passions of the flesh. Study them. Know what they are. Know how they act in your life. With a spouse, with other brothers or sisters in this church, confess what the passions of the flesh that you often are given to, confess those openly, and say, I want to avoid these. Will you help me fight? And finally, let the warnings in Scripture hit you as a warning that motivates your soul to good works. 
Beloved, we sang a song right before I got up to preach today. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train. Can I tell you what war Jesus came to fight? He came to crush a serpent and get a girl. And the bride of Christ is the church of Jesus. He came to fight a war. When these passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul, come for you, you are not fighting this war alone. Jesus fights this war. Jesus fights for his bride. Jesus fights for her purity. Jesus fights for her hand. Jesus will win this war. Mark it down. Jesus will win this war. So, this week, go forth and abstain and fight with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your word as it leads us perfectly, as it gives us the truth which we ought not be ashamed of, and yet we so frequently are. Lord, let there be confession, let there be repentance, and then pour out your spirit on us to walk in newness of life. The world was covered in a deluge of water. But because Noah and his family were in the ark, a picture of Jesus, who bore the turbulence and the wildness of the waves and kept Noah and his family safe, we too can have confidence. Our Jesus protects us. Our Jesus fights for us. And our Jesus loves us far more deeply than we can imagine. So, when the passions of the flesh arise to wage war against us this week, help us to abstain. Help us to say no. Help us to remember we're sojourners and exiles. We're only here for a short time. I don't have time for this. First, the kingdom of Jesus. First, his righteousness, always on our minds. Let us keep Christ ever before us. Because he himself warned us, I am coming. All eyes are going to see me. Many on the earth will mourn in that day. Lord, may we be those who are ready with oil in our lamps, eyes to you rejoicing because the bridegroom has arrived. Let it be this way. And let it be this way for the sake of Jesus and for his kingdom. Amen.